Okay, we're continuing this study of the eternality and deity of the Lord Jesus. And where I'll be picking up today is on page 7 of your notes, and um, specifically on the sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason I want to start there is simply because there have been some significant misunderstandings uh, of the sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. But before I do that, if you have a person who doesn't understand that uh, in the Old Testament that the the Son is referenced, there's a a wonderful passage in Proverbs that you should turn to, and and so I'll start there. Proverbs 30, verse 4. And if you've got a copy of God's Word, you can access it either on your phone. And and if if you don't have a copy, there's pew Bibles uh, in each of the pews, the ESV version, good good solid translation. But in Proverbs 30, verse 4, and this ties in essentially with Isaiah chapter 40, verses 11 through 14. But there's a question uh, that is being asked, uh, and who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or... Do you see how the rest of it goes? His son's name. So it's a wonderful passage if you've got someone, and maybe you've got a Jewish friend who says, well, I've heard that Christians worship three gods. They've been taught that. It's not their fault. They've been taught that. And that's not true. We don't. We worship one God in three persons, the Trinity, which is a challenging subject, to say the least, to, to comprehend. But, uh, but certainly... We're going to be focusing on the second person of the Godhead, the the, the Son. But here the question is, what's his name or his son's name? Surely you know. And if they don't know, you can tell them his name. His name is is Yahweh. His name is Jehovah. His name is, in the New Testament, uh, Joshua. Uh, Jesus, Yeshua, the one who came to save people from their sins. And um, so there's a wonderful passage in Proverbs 30. But picking up with this uh, section on the Son of God, the reason that, again, I'm mentioning that is there have been some that have unfortunately looked at the Sonship of Christ and taken the position that the Sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ commenced at the Incarnation. Now, the people who advocate that position have not denied the deity of, of Christ, have not denied the eternality of Christ, uh, but they've had a mistaken understanding of the sonship that his, his sonship commenced at the incarnation. And that, that is clearly not accurate. Uh, for the most part, they've been misguided by an unfortunate understanding of Hebrews chapter 1. Today thou art my son, um, which is a quotation directly from Psalm 2. And it's, there's also a reference in Hebrews 5 and also a reference in Acts 13, 33, and 34. But the sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ is eternal. He's always been the son. There's never been a time in all well, time. A time is a concept that doesn't really relate to eternity. But there's never been any instance when the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, has been any other than the son of God. The good news is that some of the people who have mistakenly advocated incarnational sonship, as it's called, have seen that that's not accurate and they publicly rescinded that, that misunderstanding, and that's good. We need to be humble enough to recognize, uh, and I'm, I know along the way that if, if someone were to record everything I've said and, and look at what I've taught, I'm sure I need to be corrected at some point. I'm, I'm positive of that. 
but the, the sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, the Son of God is a title that has been used, and I'm, I'm really using a, a number of references from two books here. One of them is by John Walvoord, uh, The Lord Jesus Christ, and the other one is uh, by Mark Jones, uh, talking about knowing Christ, and both of them are just tremendous. There are other sources that I, I refer to. But when, the ti- when it's used as a title of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's speaking of his eternal relationship to the Father. Uh, and again, he's always been the Son. And that's been the understanding since the Council of Nicaea. And I'll, I'll spend a little time uh, going through the history of the Council of Nicaea. We, we need to understand, we need to appreciate these sacrifices that were made in the early centuries of the church to adhere to solid doctrine because there were battles that were waged. And, and we, in, in today's world, we're, we, we are the um, ones who inherit the, the legacy of all of that work. Uh, but Athanasius um, and, and others uh, in the early centuries who fought and suffered greatly to establish solid doctrine, unless we understand a bit of church history, and unfortunately that, that has been a weak point in my, under, in my education over the years. I'm trying to correct that. Um, but un- until we really understand some of the sacrifices that have been made, like Athanasius and others, and, and these wonderful, we call them ecumenical creeds, it has nothing to do with, with modern-day ecumenicalism. It has zero to do with that. So when you hear the term ecumenical creeds, don't link it up with, with you know, everybody singing around kumbaya and, and, and missing, you know, all the important distinctions. And, and that, it has nothing to do with that. It's talking about the church universal. That's what it means. But the scriptures affirm very clearly the eternality of the Son of God by eternal generation. Now, here's the, an extra handout, and again, I won't be covering that, but when we get into some of these concepts like eternal generation, and we begin to look at sonship from a human standpoint, uh, my son, um, generated by his physical progeny, all of those human metaphors fail immediately, and they, they, they clearly do not accurately reflect anything relating to, to the Godhead. When we're talking about eternal generation, it has nothing to do with an inception. In a human world, when we talk about generation of father and son, we're talking about there was a point in time when, when a son came into being. That is not the case with the Son of God. He's always, from eternity, been the Son of God. But the term that's used is eternal generation. And you can read this, and I I hope that you find it helpful. But Psalm 2, verse 7, uh, Jehovah, Yahweh. And when you look at your scriptures and you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's the translator's way of keying you in on the fact that the Hebrew word that is used there and I'm not sure that we really know how it was pronounced in that time, but it's Y-H-W-H is the way that we would transliterate that into English letters. Some people will say Yahweh, but Lord, Jehovah. Um, and Jehovah is simply taking those letters and adding vowels in between the consonants. That's how Jehovah came in, into being. If you take uh, Yahweh, Y-J, etc., and you add vowels in between them, that's how Jehovah came into being. So it's a name. It's, it's, an, it's a covenant name. Of God, But in Psalm 2, flip over, this is a, actually a very important passage of Scripture. And, and if you've been attending on Wednesday night in our prayer meeting uh, a couple of, of uh, Wednesdays ago, our, our pastor covered Psalm 2. It's uh, a, clearly a messianic psalm. There's no question about that. And it's written by David. 
And if you're looking for the superscript or the title that says by David, you won't find it, but the New Testament attributes this psalm to David. So based on that ascription, we will claim David as the author. But this is um, a, a psalm that deals with the, the majesty, the supremacy, the sovereignty of God over all of his creation as king, as ruler, and the futility of the earthly kings that would try to throw off the authority of God and, and establish their own reign and rule. What a foolish thing that is. And God literally laughs in derision towards those who would attempt to supplant his authority. And that happens today. It happens all the time. It's happened since, since the, the creation. Um, but there's been this resistance to the authority of God. And this is what Psalm 2 is all about. But it's uh, the rulers take counsel against the Lord, verse 2, capital O-R-D, and against his anointed, that's Jesus, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us, verse 3. The rea reaction of the Lord God Almighty as he, he sits in heaven uh, as the ruler and supreme authority of all because he brought it all into existence, and he scoffs at that. But he goes on and he says, I've established my king, in verse 6, and in verse 7, the speaker changes. And here you have the second person of the Godhead speaking. And this is, the, this is Jesus speaking. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Now, how do I know it's another speaker? Because clearly, if you look at this, there's a change. This is, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. The Lord has been speaking, and now suddenly there's another voice that is appearing. And that voice is the voice of Jesus the second person of the Godhead, who we established last week, I think, pretty clearly that Jesus is Yahweh, the Father is Yahweh, the Holy Spirit is Yahweh, the Trinity is Yahweh. Each and every one of them are Lord, capital O-R-D. So if that's not clear to you, then, then it's in the notes from, from last week. But um, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now that does not mean, sometimes when we look at an expression like today I have begotten you, that does not mean that there was an instance when Jesus was not son and suddenly he is son. That is not clearly not the case. What that's, it's referring to an eternal decree. And Today is often used, and as a matter of fact, if you trace it through in the book of Hebrews where it's used in the New Testament, it, it really has in most instances a sense of a timeless now. It's not like today, October the 23rd. It, it clearly does not have that sense at all. It just means now in the present, and it, it's, a, it's an ever-present reality. That's the point, that he's always been the Son. And he's been established uh, as he's begotten you. And it's an eternal begottenness, if I can use that expression, or in an eternal generation. And he speaks of the fact that the Lord Jesus is going to be given the kingdom. And he's going to reign and rule. And that all of those who attempt to supplant the authority of God will be crushed. And we know that's true from the book of Revelation that that, and other passages as well. That there will be a time when the Lord Jesus comes and he, he clearly destroys all of those, all of his enemies and establishes his kingship. So that's, uh, and here we have this passage in Psalm 2, and it's, again, it's repeated in Acts chapter 13 and Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 5, and those references are in your notes. But in every instance when it's used and it's hearkening back to Psalm 2, it's, it's confirming the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And just another point in view, we, we talked about this last week, but the pre-existence and, and eternality, there was a little ambiguity on that. I talked with a few folks and they weren't entirely clear and it's because I probably didn't communicate it very clearly. The difference between eternality and, and pre-existence is this. Pre-existence simply says that someone is affirming that Jesus existed before his incarnation. It might mean that that person is affirming eternality, but it, it doesn't necessarily require that they affirm eternality. Arius, the heretic, affirmed pre-existence of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he viewed him as a created being. He created him as a subordinate to the Father. Eternality means that there's never been an inception. There's, it always has been Alpha and Omega. And someone asked me not too long ago, how, how, many, how long do you think it was, a million years, two million years, you know, prior to, you know, before the creation of the world? And in eternity, days, years, seconds are meaningless. There is no inception date. If we were to say it's a million years um, before the creation of the world, that would mean that there was a time, time zero, when the clock started, and there was never a time zero. And if you ask me to explain that, I'll probably point you to my pastor. And he can do a better job at it than I can. But we were, we were having this conversation this week over lunch, and some uh, dear person had asked him, can you explain uh, eternity? And, and um, no, I can't. Uh, it's, it's a reality. It's a truth. We embrace it. We enjoy it. We love it. But can I? It's the, the, my finite mind trying to communicate an infinite concept. And, and You'll have to find someone other than myself. The Lord will have to explain that to you when you meet him. But, uh, but the eternality is opposed to preexistence. So that's a distinction that may be of help to you. But, for instance, a, a wonderful passage in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 4. I actually used this one time on a Christmas Eve service here at, uh, at Christ Fellowship. I, I love this passage. It's, it speaks of why Jesus came. Galatians 4, 4. When the fullness of the time came, that's God's appointed hour, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, that's the incarnation, born under the law. Why? These are, one, these are, wonderful, these are some of the most precious words you'll ever read. Why? So that he might redeem those under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Notice that God sent forth his son. What does that mean? It means it was son before the incarnation, right? If someone, if the father sends forth his son, then then clearly the son existed as son prior to the incarnation. And for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Clearly it affirms the preexistence of the Lord Jesus as son. We've already affirmed the preexistence and eternality of Jesus as God. But now we're affirming the preexistence and eternality of Jesus as the Son, always being the Son. So if, if, if I need to explain that a little bit further one-on-one, I'd be, be happy to do that. But um, page um, 8, and I'm going to be brief about this because there's some other important points that I'd like to bring up, but some other titles that are used, The First Begotten, The Only Begotten, and then this wonderful title, of the Son of God, the angel of the Lord, or the angel of Yahweh, or the angel of Jehovah. Any of those are accurate uh, terms. But just in brief, and you can look at your notes on this, but there are three meanings that are used in Scripture when we see first begotten. And this comes from John Walford. Uh, The first meaning has to do with uh, there was literally the first of a family. 
um, and, and that's not the meaning. The, the first meaning is referring to the eternal existence of the Son of God, and it affirms this concept of eternal generation. That's, that's a, the way in which it's used in Romans 8, 29, and Colossians 1, uh, verse 15. But just speaking about the eternality, the first begotten, that, that can be a problematic concept for us because if we think of it in human terms, first implies that there's a second or that there was a time when the first didn't exist. And, and I, I realize that. That's, this, this is one of those difficulties when we read English words and we try to, to adapt that to our human understanding or finite understanding. There is no second begotten. There, is no, there was never a time when the first was not the first. It's an expression that is designed to communicate his eternal existence. And if we, we have to harmonize scriptures. So we, we look at Micah 5, 2. We, we talked about his, his, his days have been from, from, from evermore. And so we, we harmonize all these passages. And we're looking at passages like Romans 8, 29, and so on, and understanding that this is talking about the preexistence and the eternality of the Lord Jesus. Um, the only begotten. Uh, a, a, this is a term that is used that only John, the apostle, uh, uses this. And he uses a number of instances in the Gospel of John and one instance in his first epistle. Um, John 1.14, we'll just look at that briefly. This is uh, what we call the prologue of the Gospel of John, and it's absolutely a magnificent section of Scripture talking about the Lord Jesus The Word became flesh, that's the incarnation, and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory uh, as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The only begotten from the Father. And then later in that same section, no one in verse 18 has seen God at any time. The only begotten God. Did you notice that expression, the only begotten God? So that affirms the deity of the Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, speaking of the very intimate relationship that we have. And again, this is an instance when we look at in the bosom of the Father, God is incorporeal. He has no physical body. Jesus took on a physical body, but the Father is incorporeal. And, and so when we have expressions like in the bosom of the Father, that's an accommodation to us so that we can relate to that. It's speaking of intimacy, proximity, person, a close, intimate relationship. What has he done? He has literally exegeted the Father. He's declared him. He's explained him. If you, and Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And there was a time when, when his, one of his, his disciples said, you told us that, that you're going away and, and you know the way and how do we know the way and, and I'm the, you know, and, and you're going to show us the Father and Jesus says, how long have you been with me? You, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I've explained the Father to you and, and that shouldn't surprise us because he's God and there's never been a time when he hasn't been God. But John 1, 14, John 18 and John um, 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave, gave his only begotten Son. It speaks of the unique relationship that the Son has to the Father, this very precious relationship. It's so important that we grasp the fact that he was eternally the Son. When God gave his only begotten Son, and he sent his Son into the world, the Father was literally sending the Son, and the Son was in perfect obedience to the eternal decree of the Father, subordinating his, uh, taking on the, uh, in obedience to the Father, 
the, the mission to die for the, for the elect, for those whom the Father had given him. This, this son, the only begotten son, sent into the world, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in a moment, but what a precious relationship that is, and that's the one, this only begotten son that was sent to be our Savior, the one in the bosom of the Father, the one who's always been the son of the Father. The Father loves the Son with infinite love, and the Son loves the Father with infinite love. And that's the one, the only begotten Son, that was sent to be the one to die in our behalf, who's never, who'd never known sin until the cross. And then when, when, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's speaking of the fact that at that point in time, Jesus was assuming the, the wrath of the Father on our behalf because he was taking our sin upon himself like Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. That's the son, this dearly beloved son sent into the world to, to take on sin. Had never, had never known sin, never experienced sin, never experienced the, the wrath of the Father, only the infinite love of the Father. That person in the Godhead sent in perfect obedience and, and he died for us, and he lives for us. So we need to understand eternal sonship. It makes a lot of difference. He just didn't become the son of the incarnation. Number one, that's not biblical. But number two, it, it undermines the, the sacrifice that was made on our behalf, the, the suffering of this, this son. The angel of, of the Lord, and many of you know this already, but when not an angel or a, any angel, so you, you read any number of instances, this is an Old Testament concept, strictly Old Testament, because in the New Testament, after the Incarnation, you, you will not find a reference to the angel of the Lord. Why? Because the angel of the Lord manifested himself in the Incarnation as Jesus. In the Old Testament, when you see the angel of the Lord, that specific expression, it's what we call a Christophany. It's, it's a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah went ahead of a vision of the temple and, and the Lord was seated on his throne high and lifted up and his, and his robe filled the, the temple and, and, and there was just majesty and, and Isaiah saw God and he just fell face down. He was completely undone and he said, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean, unclean lips. He was utterly devastated. It was Jesus that he was looking at or at least a Christophany. How do we know that? Because John, they got the, the Apostle John in John 12 tells us that. We looked at that last week, so you can look at the notes. But a, the angel of the Lord is a Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. Pre-incarnate before uh, he came into the world and took on human flesh, a, a manifestation of Christ. And, and so how do we know that? Well, what, what do we know about the, the angel of the Lord? Page 9. Uh, there are three things that we need to grasp. One of them is that the angel of the Lord is God, uh, that he is Jehovah, specifically. And we've established last week that the Father is Jehovah or Yahweh, that the Son is Yahweh, that the Holy Spirit is Yahweh, the Trinity is Yahweh. All of them are, are uh, equated to, to Yahweh. Uh, there's a, a passage in Genesis chapter 16. Flip over there. And uh, this is a dialogue between the angel of the Lord and Hagar. Hagar had gone off into the wilderness uh, after the estranged relationship with Sarah. Um, and 
So she was out there by herself, uh, and, and so she's trying to figure out uh, what to do. Um, Sarah took Hagar the Egyptian and gave her to the husband as his wife, etc. Uh, and if you look at John 16, or pardon me, Genesis 16, verse 10, there is this um, dialogue uh, between Hagar and the angel of the Lord, and it starts in verse 10. The angel of the Lord, um, actually it starts earlier than that, but, but the passage I want to look at in verse, is verse 10. The angel of the Lord um, speaks to her in verse 9. It also occurs, and I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many accounts. So who is this angel? Of, what do we know about the angel of the Lord? Then if you look down at verse 13, she called the name of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, who spoke to her, you are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? So what do we know from this passage in Genesis 16? That the angel of the Lord is a distinct person, is God, is God. And how do we know that? Because, because deity is ascribed to the angel of the Lord by Hagar, specifically. Okay. Um, in another passage, in Zechariah chapter 1, so you have to flip to the other end of the, the, new, of the Old Testament. Almost the very end. Second from the last, Zechariah chapter 1. Verse 12 and 13, the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, which you have been indignant these 70 years? Now, what do you notice there? You notice that the angel of the Lord, and we learn from Genesis 16, that the angel of the Lord is Yahweh. And is, it, it, here is a separate person from, you know, uh, from one of the other persons in the Godhead. How do we know that? Because the angel of the Lord is addressing the Lord of hosts. Do you see that? Okay. So here we know that there are at least two in the, in the Old Testament who are addressing each other as Yahweh. Genesis 16 and Zechariah 1. So if you've got a Jewish friend and they're struggling with the concept of the Trinity, you could start in Proverbs 30, verse 4. You could go to Genesis 16. You could go to Zechariah 1, and you could establish very clearly that God has a son. You could establish that the angel of the Lord is God, is Yahweh. You could establish that the angel of the Lord is a different person than Yahweh, that there are at least two Yahwehs here. So you can see the multiplicity of the persons. Is the Trinity specifically articulated? No. But you can see the fact that, the, that, 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 that God is, is compound, if, if I can use that term, more than one person. And, and so you can begin to put these wonderful pieces of the puzzle together. And then we learn from the New Testament, he, the, the angel of the Lord completely disappears when, when the incarnation occurs. And why is that? Because he's taken on human flesh. And who was the, the, the one who took on human flesh? The Son. And so this is the mysterious angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, a, a Christophany. And, and now he is the, the incarnate Christ. Page 10. I would be remiss when we're talking about the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ 
as the second person of the Godhead if, I, if we didn't address the fact that there, there is this eternal um, agreement, eternal undertaking. Uh, the Reformed people will call it a covenant. At, at a minimum, we can call it an agreement, an undertaking uh, between the Father and the Son. How do we know that? Well, Ephesians 1 refers to the fact that the Father set his love upon his people in eternity past, and we know in Galatians 4 that he sent forth his Son, born of a woman born under the law. But Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. And from other, when we went through the doctrines of grace and we, we studied um, unconditional election and we studied the design of the atonement, you may recall those of you who were along for the, for the study at that point in time, that Jesus died for those whom the Father had given him, that the Father had given him a specific number, a, a vast number, a great number, not, not a small number, but a great number, but a, a number of people that the Father had given to Jesus to die for, to purchase. And he did that. He did exactly that. That's what Galatians 4 said, to redeem those who were under the law, born under the law. And so there is this eternal undertaking in eternity past between the Father and the Son, the Father setting his love upon those whom he would save, and the Son in perfect obedience to the Father undertaking this. The Puritan John Flavel created this dialogue. It's hypothetical. It's, it's not real. It's not canonical. It's not in the Scripture. But it communicates what took place. This is on page 10. Father, this is in the middle of the page. My son... Here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? The Son. O oh, my Father, such is my love to and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in that there be no after reckonings with them, no unpaid debt. In my hand shall you require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all their debt. Father, but my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. All of the debt must be paid. Expect no abatements, no, no short-circuiting of the debt, no, no lessening of the obligation. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. And he didn't. He did not spare any of his wrath. It was all poured out upon his son. The Son, content, Father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. Only God could do that. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. 
If we don't understand the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ, I, I don't know that we grasp what, has, what, what uh, John Flavel just, uh, and, and again, this is hypothetical, this is a, 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 a make-believe dialogue, but it's, it's based on Scripture, and it's based on the obedience of the Son to His Father's will, and what was done for us so that we could have eternal life. Well, just in the time that remains, flip over to page 11, and I'm just going to, to go through this briefly, but the, the point here, and you can look at this in more detail uh, when, you, when you get home, but the Council of Nicaea, Nicaea was, it was, was in modern-day Turkey, in the north part of modern-day Turkey, and um, there was a bishop of, of uh, this is where the council was developed, but Alexandria was in Egypt, and as I reflect on this, in today's world, you look at Egypt and you look at Turkey, and there's virtually no Christian presence in those two countries. But at that, it, in the first century, in the second, third century, and the like, these were epicenters of Christian growth, of, of orthodoxy, and, and theological battles. Big battles were waged in those cities, in Alexandria, in Nicaea, and other places. But Athanasius, and he's a hero, if, 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 literally, Athanasius is, is just a man's man when it comes to being a theologian. He suffered greatly to, to undertake for the truth. And uh, he, he opposed the teaching of a fellow named Arius. Arius was a heretic who uh, proposed that there was a time when Jesus was not, that he's just a majestic person, but he was created. He would affirm pre-existence, but not eternality. He would not affirm the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can't be saved by tri- putting your faith in someone who's less than God. And, um, but he was a subordinate being. Athanasius literally was exiled five times over a period of, of uh, 40 years or so for taking on a solid stance and, and arguing for the truth. And a, another emperor uh, that came along, uh, Theodosius, uh, demanded that he quit opposing Arius. This, this battle had been waging. It wasn't a, a, a one-and-done deal. It, it resurfaced. There, there were at least two battles that took place. And Theodosius reproved Athanasius and said, Do you realize that all the world is against you? And Athanasius quickly responded, Then I am against the world. And, and he gained the title Athanasius Contramundum, which is Latin for Athanasius against the world. That was his nickname, Athanasius Contramundum. He was against, if the world was opposed to truth, I'm against the world. You can count on me. I'm not budging. I'm not compromising. We take these things for granted. The, 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 these doctrines, the, the, the eternality of Christ, they're taught in the scriptures. But they, they were fierce battles. And there were heretics that were, were very, very powerful. But there was, you can read this, but what's interesting about this, this council of Nicaea is that there, that there was this ongoing struggle between Athanasius and, and, um, and Arius, Arius the heretic. And um, there was this concern that the, the church was going to be split over this, this consternation between these two theologians of their day. And so uh, the, there, there was a, um, a, a meeting that was confirmed, uh, convened, I should say. This is on page 12. I'm just giving you the Reader's Digest version now. And um, 
it was uh, it was actually convened to get all of these representatives together from all over the Mediterranean basin to uh, to uh, to meet and discuss this. Constantine was the one who convened the meeting, paid their expenses so they could all get together and there were three coalitions that came together. Um, there was uh, a fellow named Alexander and Athanasius, and they're heroes. They, they are just tremendous, tremendous. And uh, then there was a, um, a group under Arius, and then the largest group were a people, a, a number, 1,200 delegates, by the way. And there, the, the largest coalition were those who weren't entirely sure, and they didn't have firm convictions. Does that sound familiar? That's, that's exactly what was going on. And Arius propounded his point of view and didn't get a lot of salutes and it became evident to to Constantine that something needed to be done and so Constantine was looking to push for compromise. And, And so there was a compromise that was forged in some essential language about the Father and the Son being of the same substance, both being equal toward each other, was deleted. And so Arius said, yeah, I'll sign in on that. And Alexander and Athanasius said, any agreement that Arius would sign on, I'm against, because I know the kind of man that he is. And so they said no, and they fought, and they fought, and they fought, and the the important language was inserted. And that became the Nicene Creed, and it affirms, and we read it last time, the Nicene Creed, 325 A.D. Well, the battle didn't stop there. It went on 56 years later. Athanasius was still at it, and Arius was still at it, and Arius was still out stirring the pot and trying to get supporters and undermine the truth. Fifty-six years this was going on. 381, another group was convened under Theodosius. And so they had to regather together and, and, and deal with this a second time. In between 325 and 381, Athanasius was exiled five times. Five times. And he came back each time, and he just stood his ground. Five times he did it. This guy's just an absolute hero. And, and those are the kind of men that, that, that we, we, we benefited from over the years. But the point, I, I say that, and you can read this discussion in more detail, it's, it's, it's tremendous, is we need to understand that orthodoxy was hard fought in the first centuries. Uh, this is in the, the 300s. And they, they were standing for the scriptures, and they were not budging, they were not compromising one iota. And so there was a creed, the Athanasian Creed, that's named after Athanasius. I don't know that he wrote it personally, but it's named after him. And the Nicene Creed was forged through his own bravery. But these, that's how important these nuances, as we, you know, some people would say, they're, they're not nuances. They're, they're uncompromisable aspects of divine truth. Some people might call them nuances, but they're, they're, they're absolutely indispensable segments of divine truth. They're not optional. They're, they're not optional. But that's how important these things were. They were fought, fought, fought. So I, I'm, I, Athanasius is a superhero in my book, and, and so were some of these others. And, but you'll, you'll read how Arius you know, was just added, and, and you'll read how there was this enormous group that, that was, was trying to find a way to kind of make peace with, Ath- with uh, Arius, and it was a pretty big group. And they were, all they wanted to do was to eliminate the controversy. They, they didn't want there to be contention between segments in the church. But the price for peace was an abdication of truth. And, and again, when Athanasius was said, 
don't you understand that the whole world is against you? And he immediately responded, then I am against the world. That's the value that he placed on absolute truth. And that's the, that's the value that we should place on absolute truth. We're not seeking to be contentious. We're not seeking to be, you know, difficult people. But when it comes to affirming the truth of Scripture and what the Bible teaches, we have to stand our ground. And I, I praise God that there are men throughout church history that have done that. And, and we, we, we shouldn't take that for granted. We, we need to take these historic creeds of the Christian faith, become familiar with them, and esteem them as affirmations of, of uncompromisable biblical truth. So that's a brief uh, pricey of the Nicene Creed. And then the second item, again, you can, you can look at this uh, on your own, on eternal generation. I, I hope it's, it's helpful for you.